The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guests today are C.L. Mitchell and John Core, joining me to continue this long-term series with an overview of the Torah. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I believe that we left off last time in reviewing numbers, so I believe it's time to move into Deuteronomy. Which of you gentlemen would like to take on that challenge? Well, uh, I'll... I'll take on the challenge of talking about Deuteronomy for a short period of time. Um, Deuteronomy, of course, the children of Israel now have uh, have traveled uh, for a very long time. Numbers, we found out that because of disobedience and unbelief, they weren't able, able to enter the promised land. Um, the second generation of people uh, who came out of Egypt, the Exodus, are now pre- being prepared to enter the land. And Moses is giving them some speeches and giving them some talks and preparing them to enter the land. And Deuteronomy is, in a a sense, uh, is an expansion of the Ten Commandments. Uh, You have the Ten Commandments that were found in Exodus, and now he's sort of reiterating those and expanding them uh, much more, uh, with a lot more detail uh, to prepare them to go into the land. And the whole purpose when they go into the land, of course, is to follow God's laws and, of course, be God's people and, uh, and God would bless them. Moses, of course, is unfortunately is himself not able to enter the land because of his own unbelief uh, with the issue of um, hitting a rock instead of speaking to the rock for water to be provided. Uh, so Moses himself is not going to enter the land, but the people will, along with Joshua and Caleb, will lead them. Sorry, can you expand on that? Uh, Back with that, Moses? that issue of Moses not being able to continue. Yeah, there's a point where where um, the people, if if you read the book of Numbers, there's a lot of complaining going on. <laughs> people are under stress. There's a lot of, of of grumbling, complaining. The people are complaining about Moses. The pl- complaining uh, about God's provision. Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron are even complaining. And Moses himself has pretty much have had it. And uh, there's a point where God. Uh, says, listen, I will provide for them, and he does provide meat. He sends a bunch of quail their way, but also water. And he told Moses to to speak to a certain rock, which was probably, imagine, a large rock, and say to the rock, you know, for the water to be provided. And Moses, in his anger, instead of speaking to the rock, struck the rock twice. God still provided the water for Israel, but he misrepresented God in that instance. He, 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 he got impatient and angry with the people, which is not God's heart uh, at that time. Uh, because of that, Moses was told that he will not be able to enter into the promised land. So that's sort of the issue that was going on with, with that. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for Moses, you know, it was a, 
because he was such a, a, a pivotal leader, I mean, he was the, lead, the leader of Israel, and he was the representation or the representative of God himself, he had to be careful how he conducted himself with the people. And this impatient attitude and, and his, his anger got the best of him, and it cost him. It cost him greatly. So, What was he, what was he hitting against the rock? His staff. Instead of speaking, saying, let their water become forth, he struck it out of anger. And for that single reason, he was penalized from continuing forward. Right. God says, I will, I will be honored as, or, uh, as, as... I will be treated as holy. Treated as holy. Mm-hmm. And that was... And, I, and we think it's unfair, but we think about the position Moses held um, and the fact that he is sort of representing God to the people. He is the, the mediator. Um, he spoke to the people on uh, behalf of God and vice versa to God on behalf of the people. So because of his position, um, you know, what, what seems to us is not a big deal was a very big deal to the Lord. And I, I think a couple of things should be mentioned. First of all, um, his activities are not inconsequential, as, as John stated. Uh, James in the uh, New Testament says in chapter 3, verse number 1, Brothers, let not many of you be teachers in so much as you shall incur upon yourself a stricter judgment. God holds his leaders to a higher responsibility and culpability. So that's not just speaking of Moses, if you will. That's also speaking of all of those who bear leadership um, throughout the Bible and throughout um, um, biblical history. Uh, but as he stated, that was a difficult time for Moses. Actually, it was just at the time where his sister Miriam had uh, passed away. So Moses is going through an emotional difficulty, and he has wrestled with these people for years, you must realize. And and having wrestled with these people uh, over aggravating circumstances, um, uh, there are two reasons, in fact, why uh, he was not allowed to go in. The Psalter actually makes a comment on this particular incident later on in his writings, and he says um, not only was it a striking of the rock, but he also spoke ill-advisedly with his lips. If you remember the phraseology, he says, um, he strikes the rock and he, then he says, drink you rebels. Uh, he calls them a name and then he says, must we fetch water out of this rock for you? Well, the truth is Moses uh, hadn't fetched water out of anything for anyone. It was all due to the power of God and he did not glorify, honor, or treat God as holy in the midst of the people. And uh, so God disciplined him for that. Now, that's difficult. But it is a truth. That seems rather strange that God can forgive him for killing the Egyptian and yet not forgive him for this this act, given how far he had brought these people. I don't think the word forgive is the right term to use in that scenario because it almost argues, again, that God chose um, um, uh, a, a... uh, self-defense incident and forgave him for that but did not forgive him for something that seems far lesser when we compare it from a human perspective and to be certain I don't think we can argue about forgiveness in so much as um, uh, there's no question as to whether or not uh, Moses goes to the bosom of Abraham and later on has entrances to heaven I mean we see him in Luke 9 we see him in Mark line 9 we see him in Matthew Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration. And what you have is a difference between forgiveness and consequences. Right. God can still forgive a person, 
but they still may face consequences. A person who smokes for 30 years may be forgiven of sins, but they still may face consequences of you know, lung disease or something, you know. A prime example of that is, uh, does God forgive David uh, of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband? Absolutely. But consequentially, what does God say? The sword will never depart from your household. Uh, so so uh, God's forgiveness of us does not abrogate the circumstances that we've placed ourselves in. And I think looking at his the history of Moses, he is much further on. And in one sense, with, with more information, with more knowledge, comes more responsibility. You know, obviously, murder is not, never good. Um, but the fact that he's been the leader of the people for so many years, he's been prepared for all this, um, he has a lot more knowledge of God and of his ways, and he's held to a higher standard. So, in, in other words, his accountability should be at a point with his wisdom from God where... He should not be making these mistakes at this stage. Well, I want to be very careful and say uh, that he's not beyond mistakes as evidenced by the text. But there are certain mistakes that are made that have a higher level of culpability than others. Uh, And, of course, again, even in the pastoral epistles in the New Testament, um, Paul is very clear that God is not just looking at uh, one's ability to teach, if you will, um, in order to um, uh, qualify him uh, for ministry. Rather, God looks at the quality of his character, both in his marital relationship and his relationship with God as a personal believer, in his relationship as a husband, as a father, uh, as one who can manage well his own household. So there is a strong level, again, of responsibility, culpability, and accountability that any leader has. Now, I do have to point out that we do see the grace of God and the fact that God does allow him to see the land from a from mountain. Uh, from mountaintop to to overlook the land and see what it looks like. So, and of course, we do read in the Gospels how uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah meet with Jesus somewhere in Israel. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's um, that you know. that has to be one of the saddest pictures in the Bible. It, it is because it, it's very difficult for me. I can I can never ever exposit over it or read over it without my tear ducts becoming wet. Um, and, and the reason for it is because I want Moses to be able to step in that land so badly. I mean, of course, to be in the presence of God is far greater than that, mind you. But Moses had waited so long and gone through so much. I mean, remember, um, he is the meekest man who has ever lived, according to uh, the book of Deuteronomy, in his obituary clause. Uh, That's the commentary concerning him. And what's interesting about this is it's a Hebrew word that argues for a wild stallion whose strength has been harnessed and brought under control. uh, he had struggled with these people to the point where he and God have an exchange and dialogue. Uh, God says, they're mo- your people, Moses. Moses says, no, they're yours. God says, no, they're yours. At one point, God says, you know what? I'll kill them all and I'll start over with a new group. We'll call them the Mosites. Moses says, don't do that, God, because the Egyptians and other nations will question uh, your fidelity to your covenant and your ability, in, in fact, to uphold your promises to your people. They'll question your character. So God doesn't do it. Um, 
And there are reasons for that. But then he gets into this exchange with God where God says, you know, because you did this, you're not going to enter the land physiologically. Uh, and, of course, I'm paraphrasing, accommodating the text in order to, uh, to, to highlight uh, what is being said by God. And Moses pleads with God and says, oh, come on, God, you know, uh, uh, please don't let that be the case. And God says, no, I'm serious. And he says, no, come on, God, really. And finally, God says, don't ask me anymore. Uh, this is going to be the case, Moses. And I want to be very careful, as John masterfully pointed out, um, uh, there is no other individual in history that we know of that God buried. He buried Moses. Um, there is no other prophet that he spoke to in the same way that he spoke to Moses. He spoke with Moses face to face. Moses is close and intimate with God. Um, uh, he would not even allow, uh, says Jude, uh, Satan to even have the body of Moses. And so sends Michael the archangel to take command of it and bury it somewhere there in Mount Nebo. Uh, again, to this date, we still don't know where his body is. So I don't want to suggest that the consequences undo or make questionable the love of God, but circumstances when we uh, commit certain wrongs as people, as individuals, as leaders, uh, there are consequences that God will not remove because, number one, uh, it would impugn his character if he did not allow us to go through those consequences. Secondarily, it would not be as as wholesome in its instruction to us if God removed every circumstance from our activity and from our sin. So, uh, in, in order to move forward um, uh, as quickly as possible uh, in this program to complete this area, can you just uh, see or, or, or John uh, give me a uh, final uh, summarization uh, of Deuteronomy? Uh, what occurs at the end of that chapter? And and interestingly, just review again. You mentioned uh, that it's an expansion of the Ten Commandments. Can you just? Uh, provide us with that. Yeah, I mean, basically you have in Deuteronomy the, the, the final fulfillment of, of God's promise to Abraham of, you know, promises Abraham he'll have uh, people, children, um, blessing to the world, and also a place to live, the land. And this now, when they go into the land in, in the book of Joshua, uh, God uh, is fulfilling his promise to Abraham. So very, very significant uh, portion of scripture. Um, I don't know if there's a whole lot of time to discuss how the law is expanded because there's just too much to talk about there. Uh, but I think the, the main thing is, is that when they go into the land, they are given certain laws to, to, to live by um, that are based on the Ten Commandments uh, and for the purpose, of course, of, of being a light to the people, but also uh, laws of, of, of maintaining holiness, uh, laws also of worship, Whereas before, when they're traveling, they're, they're going to be carrying the tabernacle around from place to place. When you read in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that, that he, they're going to have one place to put the, the tabernacle, one place which, uh, which God will then finally d dwell with his people. Uh, so you have basically uh, this great fulfillment of, of this, uh, this promise uh, to, to Abraham. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of sort of a, <laughs> a general... Um, analysis you could say it's just too much to go into as far as particular laws at, at one time if I may just give an addendum to that and say um, this book is quintessential to one's understanding of the Bible uh, as well as uh, to their understanding of the historical books uh, to their understanding of, of the prophets and their message 
to their understanding of the teaching and activity of Jesus. Jesus quotes from this book more than any other book that uh, um, he quotes from um, as recorded in the gospel. So this is really an essential book. And let me just say a couple of things pertaining to this book. Not only is he giving instruction to the new generation that is the nation of Israel, um, uh, the children who are preparing to go into the land, but they're not completely um, clear in their minds yet because still they've been in the wilderness and and uh, although they've come out of Egypt, Egypt has not completely come out of their thinking and they are yet impressionable. They have not come to understand their own identity as yet and that's going to be dangerous for them. Uh, and so part of the instruction is going to involve the Deuteronomic blessings and cursings, which is going to in fact explain, which is going to in fact explain um, um, Every dispersion that's going to take place, both for the ten tribes as well as the two, the southern and the northern kingdom, respectively, uh, it's going to explain why um, um, certain scenarios such as starvation occur later on. Uh, it's going to explain the loss of children uh, to certain levels. It's going to explain a lot of things. It's going to highlight the message of the prophets. And when they say return to God and return to his Torah, it's going to explain to that. It's also going to explain why. Uh, the kings knew better uh, later on because they were to take a copy of this book and they were to hand write it before they even took oath of office. Um, it's going to explain why Jesus quotes this book because he's actually arguing that he's the king who knows the law, acknowledges the law, and lives perfectly by the law. You know, in one sense, you could say that the book of Deuteronomy is the constitution of Israel because in actual, in actual fact, it's actually written as a legal document between uh, God and Israel and that it actually follows um, the Hittite uh, Susan Vassal treaties that uh, were around at that time uh, where God is the suzerain and Israel is the vassal and they enter into agreement and say, and God says, if you follow these laws, then you will get blessings that will follow. If you disobey these laws, there'll be curses. And they are very well aware of this. There's a ceremony that they perform uh, on the mountains of uh, by Shechem, of Ebal and Gerizim, where they, uh, where they uh, agree with and, and enter into this agreement with God. So this is really their constitution. And uh, one last thing as far as Deuteronomy is concerned, it's not only the place of going into the land, it's really a, a picture of, of God's rest that in the New Testament we finally see it fulfilled in Christ, uh, but you you have where the people have been wandering for so many years, they have been slaves for so many years. Finally, they have a place of their own, and finally, if they if they do what God tells them to do, God's blessings will follow. Uh, so that is sort of the uh, the encapsulating purpose of Deuteronomy. I, I think John's words are perfect because it's it's a political document, It's um, uh, but it's not just a political document. It's also a marital document. They stand under the chuppah. They have blood sprinkled on them as a nation, and they are wed uh, to uh, Yahweh. And uh, that's one of the reasons why you're going to have this marital language in the book of Hosea. And also you have this uh, marital divorce language later on uh, when you get to other books in the prophets. So this document is huge in, in one's thinking. So we have um, worked through from Genesis uh, to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And now let's move on. Um, how did the Hebrew nation understand these works thematically then? versus our understanding of them today? When we talk about a, a modern understanding, uh, we often, from a Protestant conservative evangelical bent um, or thereabout, look on these laws negatively. Uh, 
uh, we do not understand how the Psalter could say, I love thy law. Because we look at 613 mitzvot or 613 commandments, and we say these are just rules and regulations. And we tend to um, have an allergy, if you will, to uh, uh, rules and regulations. But I, I think it's important to point out that the term Torah springs from the term more, which means instruction, goal, or aim. These are loving instructions, goals, or aims for the people of God. In fact, uh, the word in the New Testament, Testament is the antithesis of this word, uh, the word harmatas, from which we gain the um, uh, the uh, word harmatiology, a theological term, <coughs> which springs from Greek, which means sin. Uh, it is a word picture, if you will, wherein uh, there is a bullseye and an arrow is shot toward it. And if anything other than the bullseye is hit perfectly, there is a young lad or lattice that uh, stands uh, adjacent to this mark and hollers sin saying you've missed the mark, the aim, the goal, or the instruction. So these are loving instructions, if you will, given from a parent, given by a husband, given from a king to his people that he has made his amsegula, his treasured people, if you will, his chosen people, if you will. And so when they understand this, it makes perfect sense, in fact, that uh, the Psalter and many others would say, I love thy law. By these laws am I kept because they see the instruction of, of God sweeter than the honeycomb uh, on their lips. Uh, when we tend to look at them, we uh, are, again, adverse to rules and regulations. And oftentimes we think that we find this pseudo liberty in the New Testament. And I don't want to say that we don't find a liberty in the New Testament. But if we're talking about uh, liberty from rules, uh, you don't understand the Bible, nor do you understand Christianity, because there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament where there are over 1,000 plus under the covenant of grace. So grace is far more demanding than just rules that uh, give you constraints externally. Grace demands that your heart also be uh, brought under check. I'll give you an example. Uh, Jesus says quaintly in the uh, New Testament, in the Gospels, he says, um, uh, listen, you've heard it say that uh, uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you look upon a woman um, uh, lustfully, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Basically, I don't want you to just control yourself on an external basis. I want you to gain control over, by the power of the Spirit, your internal thoughts and, and attitudes and your heart as well. So that, that leads on to the question... Are these works really applicable in today's society? And, and you may have covered that to some extent there, but can we expand upon that? Yes, they are. Um, um, the jurisprudence that we see presented herein is part of the basis for American law as well as the law for um, uh, multitudinous civilizations. Uh, more than this, it's kind of interesting because in the book of Genesis chapter 6 through 9, you see the flood account at uh, chapter number uh, 9 and also chapter number 10, you see, particularly in chapter number 10, you see the genealogical account tracing Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Uh, 
Very interesting. Well, each of the nations received their start from these individuals. And in about 200 plus countries, you have records of the flood narrative. Now, why is that important? Because it argues that the Genesis document and the information therefrom has affected every single culture on the planet. They simply added their deities and added their bent, but it literally has affected them. So it not only affects our legalities or what we consider to be illegalities, it not only affects what we consider to be human rights. Um, in fact, the Exodus, the book of Exodus became the, um, the mantra and the freedom cry for the civil rights movement in America uh, and continues to be very relevant to how we treat people ethically and things of the, this nature. How many, have you, uh, how many individuals have you heard refer to the Lex Talionis, although they haven't referred to it in that way, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? They're crying for fairness. What was that? I'm not wishing to go off subject here, really, but but was that accentuated in a way by Paul's work? When when Christian Christianity really was spread across the world. Well, I, I want to say um, um, certainly. Do you see it um, um, further extrapolated on in Pauline work? Absolutely. Uh, Rav Shaul does a fan fantastic job in extrapolating and, and expanding on that with a Judeo-Christocentric kind of ideology and philosophy. However, I want to say that this material is well established before Rav Shaul ever comes along and seems to affect the then known world in a very weighty way outside of Paul. So if you're asking, did Paul contribute to this and see this as significant and aid in the spirit? of its significance, absolutely. If you're asking, is Paul the catalyst so that he really is the one who made the document itself important? Absolutely not. It had an importance um, all uh, on its own outside of uh, the need for Paul to sort of forward it, if you will, with his brilliance. <laughs> Good response. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to add to that, John? No, I think... I, I, I think... Uh, CL is exactly right in the fact that that uh, and the the application the that mm -hmm. the, the Bible has for today. I mean, it, it has affected the the framers of our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution um, have a lot of principles that are scripturally based. You know, um, think about the uh, the three branches of government: judicial, legislative, and, and executive. Is based on a scripture from Isaiah about the Lord it says Isaiah thirty three twenty two talks about how the Lord is uh, is all three. He says, "For the Lord is our judge, that's the judicial. He is our lawgiver, the Congress, and He is our King, the executive branch." Right there in, in scripture in, in the book of Isaiah, you have um, principles of of um, uh, how how people are created equal found in the scriptures. You have uh, the fact that we have checks and balances in our in our Constitution. <laughs> Um, speaks uh, from the principle that men are sinners, that you can't trust men uh, to a certain point, so you need to have somebody to come check on them. That's based on scriptures in you know Book of Genesis and and uh, and others as well. So you have a lot of principles that I'm sure you know we can go through a whole lot of them. What's interesting is is that not only did the framers of the Constitution in the U.S. recognize this, but even a lot of the states' constitutions followed their lead by mentioning you know these principles from the scriptures. So. And I, I suppose, not trying to confuse this, but the reason I was talking about Paul looking at the Roman Empire, looking at the, the sort of laws that they created, um, that's where I'm talking about the formation of civil laws, American laws that we know now, are 
based in some part to the Roman laws. They, they really were setting up the premise of what we know today. Uh, more, uh, more, more, than, more than before that, it may have been in a scriptural, scriptural way, but it was really Rome that brought this, this uh, law structure that we know of together. Well, <coughs> Rome was the great borrower. Uh, they don't. They don't even have their own gods, frankly. Historically, <laughs> what they what they do is they they basically um, the Greeks, <laughs> right, <laughs> and rename them. They borrow um, even torture methods and they perfect them uh, to the nth degree. So I'm I'm not sure that we can say that it is all based upon uh, Roman law. In fact, when you walk into a um, uh, a courtroom historically, it's becoming less and less today as a result of 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 civil liberties and as a result of um, political correctness. Uh, but uh, historically, you could walk into most courtrooms and see a uh, copy of the Ten Commandments uh, therein. And so I, I think um, that uh, it certainly has a precedent of, uh, uh, that goes far beyond uh, or before, rather, um, Rome. And, of course, there may be certain things that we borrowed structurally and et cetera from Greco-Roman uh, thinking and, and structure, but certainly it goes before that. Well, you know, like the original uh, democracy, in, you know, in, in, in Greece, first of all, it had only, only the men voted, and there was probably maybe 40,000 men, so you didn't have a whole lot. You know, given the fact that, you know, uh, country now is, you know, 300 million people, it's impractical to have, but you can have a form of democracy, which the framers recognize, a republic, which is what we really are in, in the United States. Um, and and uh, I don't think it's, you know, I, I, I think the framers of the Constitution uh, had influences outside the Bible, obviously. There were philosophers, John Locke and, and others. Uh, but I, I think it's uh, it's also the fact that the, the very structure of, of of the Bible and the structure of of various laws in the Bible and the principles from the Bible uh, help contribute to the laws of of uh, of our of our own you know, constitution and um, principles that you, you base them. I don't know if I don't. I'm not sure how much of what they took from Rome itself. Perhaps they took some of, of that, but. Go go back even further and look at the principles of what's being protected and what's being how uh, how people are being governed, and you'll see scriptural influence in there. They may not quote the Bible directly. There's nothing wrong with that, but again, these principles that are found from way back, from at least to the Book of Deuteronomy, if not you know you know the whole Pentateuch, uh, are is unmistakable. You know. Absolutely, the, the the rights and value of of mankind of a people. I mean, that springs from Genesis chapter number one. Um, the concepts concerning contractual marriage uh, that springs from chapter number two. Um, the protection of life and the fact that um, uh, if an individual takes life, there is to be some disciplinary action exacted upon that individual. Uh, that springs from Genesis chapter number nine. Um, so uh, one could not uh, help but admit that uh, um, certainly um, this is a uh, this is a concept that has sprang from Scripture. And uh, it is within the framework of that courtesy that we have many of our liberties today, not only in America, but liberties throughout the world. And where the word of God is, um, uh, is, is silenced in a culture, where, where, where it is dampened, you see less liberties therein. You know, it's interesting as you can go through the Constitution and, um, 
and go through the the various Bill of Rights, the, the various amendments, and and tie uh, the principles there back to the Scripture. You have uh, the fair trial from the uh, this uh, having witnesses in, in a fair trial in the Sixth Amendment. I, I think of Deuteronomy or well Deuteronomy chapter nineteen and Exodus uh, chapter twenty talking about uh, that a matter will be. Um, uh, established by, by two or three witnesses. by two or three witnesses. Well, the same principle holds to back in the in the in the sixth. I'm sorry, sixth amendment rather. Fifth amendment has to do with property uh, property rights, which also is spoken of <laughs> in the book of Exodus as well. So you have a, a lot that uh, that is taken uh, from uh, from uh, from the Bible, uh, principle wise, and at least uh, help the framers to uh, uh, to do this. And it's not it's not it's not a surprise because the framers of the Constitution sought God's will and his direction and deliberated for, for months to come up with uh, what they came up with. Uh, it wasn't an easy process, but they were also very well versed uh, in the matters of Scripture, and that helped frame the, uh, their, their, and then guide them as well. Many of them were well-lettered men, uh, both in uh, a, um, a secularized degree as well as a theological degree. Yeah. How does our knowledge of the geography of the land aid our understanding of the Torah? Good question. <laughs> well, you know, it's one thing that's interesting is you don't think of geography as, as being a helpful aid to understanding the scriptures, but um, it, it really does help us understand um, that the location of Israel, for one thing, is, is strategi- strategically located where it's at. Um, first of all, Israel is not a big country. You know, it's it's a very small country, maybe 150 miles, 150 miles north to south, and maybe 60 miles east to west. Let's say, uh, not a very large piece of land, but where that land is located uh, is strategic. Back then, even today, it is it is located. If you want to get from Africa to Europe, you had to go through Israel. Uh, if you want to get from Asia to Africa, you had to go through Israel. The trade routes went through Israel. There were three main trade roads that went uh, north and south through, and there was a, one or two that went east and west as well. You didn't have, uh, as far as where it was located, you did not have a whole lot of protection, so to speak. Uh, you had, of course, you had the, the deserts in, in, in more in the, in the eastern and southeastern portion. But Israel was susceptible to, to great attacks and because of its geography, was lo- where it was located. As far as the the layout of the land, you have a very wide um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, multi um, uh, features of the of the, of the of the land. You have of course the coastal areas, and you have uh, desert areas. You have lush areas. You have uh, mountains. You have deep, very deep valleys, all within this tiny country. And uh, certain portions of the country were were more uh, fought over because of the value of the land, because of able to raise sheep or able to uh, harvest. Um, so you had uh, you have uh, to understand those things helps out as well. The fact also that that Israel was located where it was at meant that it was it was fought over by a lot of nations. For example, you had Egypt, which in one sense Egypt is secluded. Egypt. Uh, was able to develop naturally by itself because of where it's located. Uh, but oftentimes they would want to control Israel in order to have Israel be like a buffer or a pawn to separate the pe- between the, them and, say, the Assyrians or the Babylonians. 
you also have Israel being exposed to a lot of people coming back and forth. You have mercenaries or, or uh, merchants rather uh, going and doing their trade. And so, you, so Israel, uh, the people of Israel w- would be exposed to different cultures, different religious backgrounds, um, which would affect, you know, their following of God as well, because they would pick some ideas up from these other people. And so, I guess the obsession, possession that you saw back then hasn't changed to this day. Hardly. And, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. It it certainly. Oh no. No, it, it is still probably the most important property on the planet. Um, property is important to the Bible. One can hardly read through a page or so of the text of Scripture without immediately being confronted with geography um, uh, and topographical aspects of that geography and its importance to any given circumstance. In fact, uh, Batesel in his uh, Atlas of the Bible actually comments and says something rather interesting and noteworthy. Uh, He actually says that um, uh, upon giving them this land, God did not give them a land, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, that would allow for freedom or independence of God. But in fact, it was a land that necessitated and demanded dependence on God and required faith at every moment. Uh, To exist in the land of Israel is not only the gift of God to Israel, not only the grace of God to that nation, but it keeps that nation dependent upon God, um, uh, walking and living in trust, in relationship, and in faith. And if they do not do that, that's where Deuteronomy comes in because God reserves the right as the owner of the land to kick them out of the land, and he also reserves the right to place them back in the land. So what you see right now is not old hat for anybody who knows Scripture. Uh, scenarios such of this as this have happened before. That geography is important, and uh, it's not only important to the nation, it's important to God. And one thing I have to p- point out is you know, we live in the United States, okay? And we're we, we, well, <laughs> I I certainly do. Some of us are are friends and visitors here. Yes, <laughs> thank you, John. But we at least I'm not sure how it is in 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 the UK, but uh, here in the US, we like to buy and sell real estate all the time. We like to buy a house, live in it for a few years, move out, buy some land, sell it. It, it's not like that back there, back then or back there even now. When you got a piece of land, you held on to it, and you passed it down to your family, to, and it goes on to generation to generation. You go to Israel today, and you'll, go, uh, you'll drive in certain portions where there'll, there'll be a building, right? And uh, there's, there's, they have on top of the building, there's um, you know, rebar sticking out as, as preparation for the son who will get married, who will then probably live on top, and they'll build and add on to that. So they stay, they keep their land is my point. They don't buy and sell. And so land is very, very, very important uh, to them. Can I just uh, just um, uh, bear with me? According to the think tanks, uh, the situation is in Israel, Gaza Strip, Palestine, is a conflict about land. And if you look at Iraq or Iran, it's a conflict about religion. But the way that we're talking about it, it's almost as if we're talking about um, Israel being a conflict over religion as much as, as it is 
property because of the laws that God uh, provides us with through Deuteronomy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyone who would try to tell you that it's just a territorial matter or a geographical matter or a spatial matter is not well aware or is um, um, attempting to make a pseudo-divorce of that land to the people, the people of God, and what it means both to God and to those people and what it means spiritually uh, to God and to those people. Um, God doesn't put his house everywhere. Uh, God doesn't give this land to everyone as a promise. Uh, The promise, as John so eloquently put it earlier to Abraham in uh, Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 3, of course, who is Avram at that time, it's a land, a seed, and a blessing. That land is uh, centrally tied into the history of the nation. And, and, And I can tell you this. As it pertains uh, to land, uh, God has worked this way. Uh, he tells uh, Israel in uh, in his word, he says, listen, when you go through certain lands, he says this in Deuteronomy chapter number two, in fact, he says, don't you try and get into a war with them because I've given that land to them. And so I will not even give you as much of a fo- as a foot of that land. But he also protects the land that he gives to his people as well. Uh, it, it, to mention what John said, it's also a... a it's It's also a scientific phenomena, particularly the land is, particularly the science of archaeology. That's why when you get property, if you you are um, um, blessed to obtain property in the land, uh, that's why you just can't start building as you would like. Uh, They have to do a tell or dig. And and when they do a dig on, on a parcel of property, I mean, as soon as you dig the shovel in the ground, you're touching history. There's no facet of that land that's not a, a, a huge story in history dating back thousands of years. And that's not just dating back to Israel's history. That's dating back to the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites. Uh, so I mean, it's a land rich and wealthy with history. So, so it was important then. It's important now. And interestingly enough, despite what anyone says, on an eschatological scale or concerning the doctrine of last things, it will remain important. By the way, although the Bible says that um, uh, John in Revelation 21 says he saw a new heaven and a new earth from, for the former things were passed away and there was no more sea, listen to the rest of the text. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. That's the only property that he specializes in architecturally in the latter days when he makes a new spirit special place that he mentions outside of a new heaven and earth. So it remains important even into um, the new creation. With all that said, uh, should we be armed with a a special hermeneutic? When we take on the Torah uh, uh, on a global basis and those issues that we've just covered um, during our research and study, Absolutely. Uh, this is narrative literature. Uh, right. And, and in narrative, narrative literature, you have a general, and, and by this fanciful word hermeneutic, let, let me be, be very clear. It means the science and art of interpreting 
uh, scripture. Um, uh, when we talk about the science and the art, uh, this particular style of literature, the, the, the main <clears throat> style of literature that the Bible is written in is in narrative form. But as John pointed out, uh, and I think you can again speak intelligently to this, John, you have a style of Susser and Vassal Treaty. You have a style of laws. Go ahead. <coughs> well, well I mean, the, and this, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is why I use the word research. Oh, absolutely. Because research really is what uh, hermeneutics is about, isn't it? To a great extent. Yes. Well, yeah, but it's also how you it's also how you approach the text and how you're going how you going to approach how do you interpret it, you know? Uh, and and Seal's right. The narrative, especially in uh, the story of Genesis, uh, well, the whole story of, the, of most of the Old Testament is written in a narrative form. Um, there are certain ways that you approach the text, and certain ways that you can that you uh, are looking to how to interpret this. Um, especially for people today, you know, we did not live in that land in that time period. We did not speak that language, so there's a lot of barriers that we have to cross. Because ultimately, the first goal we have is really discovering how did the original listeners understand what was being spoken to them. Um, that's one challenge we have. Um, another challenge is is that how um, how then do we take that <laughs> that understanding and and transport it back to to today's so there's uh, to t- today's time. The fact that it, it's written in a story form also is another challenge because you know. We understand things like love your neighbor, you know, don't steal. Um, these, you know, don't give false testimony. Those are pretty direct statements. But what if it's a story, and there isn't a direct command? It's in there somewhere, but somehow we have to look for it and and come up with it. That's a, another kind of challenge of how to interpret uh, these narrative sections. Uh, one thing is important is that the the writers of scripture d- did not. Have um, they did not waste words? Every word they used was important. Even the genealogies uh, that a lot of us tend to skip over are important. The stories, the 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 scenes that you see, uh, whether it's say in the Book of Genesis, are all important, and they have a reason for being there. The people, when the people speak, uh, the the vocabulary or the the actual dialogue is very important. A lot of times, the theology or the understanding of the, of the meaning of the text is found in their words. My point is is that they didn't have like what we have today. If, if you're writing a book, you don't like it, you can hit the delete button and start over again. When they wrote it, they had it had to be absolutely certain. So each word is is there for a reason, and it often brings uh, a lot of impact and 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 does not. Uh, um, they don't waste time. So the point is, as you as you're reading into these uh, into the stories, we need to ask questions of 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 what it meant or what would have uh, the scene been uh, been like to the original years. What would they have understood first? That's the first uh, challenge in interpreting uh, the section of scripture. Well, let's just give some simple rules here. First of all, um, always ask the W's and the H question, right? Uh, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Um, also, uh, understand that when we approach literature such as this, in a way we approach it like any other literature. Um, but there is an aspect um, that demands a greater reverence and demands a certain level of faith because it's not just in the form of propositional truths or, or like didactic or epistolary literature, if you will. Um, so we will uh, adopt a rap 
pattern hermeneutic here. And, and what that means is when we look at characters, we will unwrap the characters. When we, we will look at time periods, we will look at personalities, we will look at opposing armies, uh, we will look at geography, we will look at terms, we will look at language, uh, we will look at different things of that nature, and we will unpack them in order to see their significance to the story that's going on, because often uh, where they were had something to do with what they did or what they said or the attitude that they had. Um, the circumstances, we'll look at those, and when we look at all of those from the authorial intent, dual authorial intent, that is, from God's perspective and from the uh, author's perspective will then look first from the viewpoint that the original audience would have seen it and, and we'll say, hmm, this is how they understood it. Then we'll sift that in order to take off the cultural mandates, in order to take off of the time constraints, and we'll see it for its timeless principle. What is this saying ultimately and finally about God? And what is this finally and ultimately saying to God's people? And then after that, we'll then look at what it looks like to apply that. And, and, and then, of course, you're, you're raising the whole aspect of Eastern thought versus Western thought into this. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Eastern, I mean, we were very different in, our, in the West from the way they, th they think or even thought back then. Uh, we tend to be very individualistic, very me-oriented and very goal-oriented. Uh, their society was more community-oriented, uh, very... Um, you you kind of uh, followed the the decisions of the community rather than the, my own decisions. I want to do what I want to do, um, and so you you kind of um, um, come at it a different at a different angle. There's things that they do that seem strange to us or uh, uh, may seem um, kind of you know awkward, but they have, we have to understand that their culture is very different. Um, uh, you have, for example, you have the issue of of, of, of romance and marriage today. Okay, uh, we want to know: is this person the one? Uh, back then, uh, the one was the one who you're set up with by your parents. Usually, your parents set you up with, uh, and then you learn to love that person and be stay married. They didn't. They didn't have the whole romantic scenario of marriage, uh, which which is the which is you know, the Bible's you know description of their culture at the time. Uh, we tend to um, love somebody and then marry them. They tend to just marry them and then learn to love them, uh, which is very different. And they took marriage, I think, even more seriously than we do today. They took it as a covenant, as a as a bond, as a marriage, uh, as a as a bringing together of two families. Um, the issue of marriage today is is in our society uh, is um, is more like a contract that can be broken or renegotiated or whatever. In concluding this program and this overview of the Torah, um, one of you gentlemen, can you uh, can you give me the the overarching theme of the Torah uh, uh, within the the entire Bible, and and uh, let our audience know what what ties the whole together. Well, let's be clear. There are three major themes in the Bible. The first being doxological, fanciful way for saying <coughs> it's not about us as much as it is about God uh, and his glory, his character, if you will, revealed in heaven and in earth, an impeccable character, if you will. Uh, but then after that, there are two major themes. There is a kingdom motif or program, and there's a redemptive motif or program. And the concept is who has the right to rule? 
Does God have the right to rule? Uh, does this character called Hasatan or Satan have the right to rule? And every decision that humanity makes is going to be a vote. Mind you, it is a vote that does not threaten to unseat God. Rather, it threatens uh, and challenges their relationship to the true, sovereign, unquestionable king. Um, uh, but the king reigns unchallenged and will proceed by folly to overthrow what the opposing kingdom uh, and the opposing supposed king proposes, namely that he will exalt his throne above the Most High and he will sit in the assembly of the righteous, if you will. Um, and so what you see is this big uh, cosmic spiritual battle. And so we are in the battle, but the battle is not mainly about us. It's about who has the right to rule. The second is how will God redeem fallen mankind. Uh, and the entire uh, Bible is this wonderful, beautiful, irresistible dance in which God, uh, um, in, in, in wonderful times and in difficult times, uh, runs his son as a scarlet thread throughout the pages of impossible circumstances to, to bring his son to die for fallen humanity and uh, brings him to to reign amongst fallen humanity and brings him finally and ultimately to have sovereign rule amongst fallen humanity, proving that ultimately and finally he retains the right to rule. Uh, so those are the three themes that really tie the Bible together, the doxological theme, the kingdom theme, and the redemptive theme. Well, I'm guessing that this concludes our overview of the Torah in preparation uh, for uh, the beginning of Genesis next week. Either of you gentlemen in the last 30 seconds just to like to give our listener a uh, general rundown of how we're going to approach Genesis. Uh, very carefully and <laughs> very respectfully, of course. Um, you know, I think what we'll do is, is we'll, we'll tackle Genesis uh, for a few weeks and then probably take a week uh, to answer some questions or to... Uh, kind of uh, go into various topics that maybe those uh, verses or chapters that we looked at uh, have covered. Uh, we've given an overview, so I think next week we will begin with, with the first chapter of Genesis, laying out the, uh, its purpose in the book and laying out also uh, practical things that come out of the book and the questions that come out, especially for today's listeners. Uh, and so um, we'll probably you know begin there and be it here known that uh, <laughs> that uh, we will be as exegetical as we can, uh, but with time constraints, we will not be able to do the kind of um, uh, lengthy, exhaustive exposition that we would like to um, um, do and engage ourselves in. But uh, allow me to say this. I think what our listeners can walk away with right now is not only the importance of these documents um, from a divine scale, not only the importance of these documents from a historical scale, but the importance of these documents um, to our faith. Why? Because not one good word of these documents have fallen. Um, uh, everything that you see by way of Messiah in the Gospels he has painstakingly and laboriously sought to fulfill every essential nuance, if you will, 
of his covenantal promises. And, and so it is, uh, um, it is incumbent upon us to reverence it, but it is also um, applicable in this way, that we are the benefactors of it through Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. C.O. Mitchell, John Cole, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. And thank you. Uh, we, the three of us, are going to look forward to bringing to you the listener from next week, a uh, review of Genesis, starting with uh, verse 1. And we will look forward to seeing you then. Meanwhile, if you do have any questions or have feedback for us to consider, then please do visit davidgibbons.org. Wherever you may be in this world, God bless you. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.